Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Creating Conscious Serendipity podcast. I am your host, Benny Matthew, the founder of Orion 3, which has the mission of creating conscious serendipity. Today, I am uh, very excited to have a good friend and Orion Core member, Don Bora. Don, welcome. Thank you. And and first, hats off for getting through that intro. I think all of the well, the conscious serendipity. I think I would have tripped up on that three or four times. So well done, my friend. Well done. Game recognizes game. Thank you, man. Thank you. Um, I, uh, you know, I feel like you and I met last year through Amanda Lannert, and uh, then we got to get to know each other well. And then this year, uh, you officially became a part of the Orion Core uh, membership. And you know, it's you have such good perspective when it comes to not just like AI and technology, but also your, um, as a human being, like your, your perspective on things. So I think, I feel like there's our conversations, how many times, when was the last a couple of weeks ago where we said, we'll grab one drink and catch up and it ended up, I don't know, I was pretty hammered by the time I got home. <laughs> and I think we were out for like three hours. So, uh, I told myself, we'll keep this conversation under an hour, but I don't want to, you know, I don't want it to, I don't want you to hold back on anything or whatnot, but um, if you can start off by just giving a little bit more of a background on who you are, uh, your company, but also just how you became an entrepreneur. Yeah. And, uh, and thank you for those very kind words. We're not drinking right now. So I think we'll be able to contain the conversation a little bit. Um, <laughs> that was, that was so fun. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah. So um, I, thanks for that. Thanks for the, the opportunity to speak with you. Um, I'm, I really dislike the phrase, but there's no other way to describe it. I'm a serial entrepreneur uh, and I've created eight companies. I'm working on number nine right now. Um, and you were in the room when Amanda um, made me stand up and tell of a room full of hundred people, my elevator pitch before I actually had it down. <laughs> I stumbled over my words then. And <laughs> um, but yeah, I, you know, I've, I've spent my life going in and out of, um, individual contributor roles, in and out of management roles, in and out of leadership roles, um, and running my own companies. And I think, you know, the first time I got the bug to start my own thing, I was it was at the goading behest of my, at the time, co-founders of my first company. They really wanted to go all in. They wanted to go and create a starting, uh, I'm sorry, create a consulting business. And it was using a very niche technology at the time. And I swear the first bit of business development that I got in my brain, it was addictive. It was that, that it was that winning. Was addictive? Yeah. It was yeah. It's like that winning feeling that you get when you compete and win something. Um, and I'm usually not good in those situations because I empathize with somebody who loses. So I don't like to be the winner necessarily, but the thing about selling your service is that if you win, they win. And it's just like, it elevated my brain to a whole different level. And I kind of got addicted to that. So when you talk about you and they, when you mean you and the customer. Yeah, exactly. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Um, and so we shut the business down. Um, we were three tech dudes and we just, the problem with three, three people who are, who are exactly the same aligned is that we couldn't figure out strategy because each of us was right about everything. Each of us had an opinion and we were both, we were all three of us were right. And we couldn't really decide on a, a, a strategy for the business. So we shut it down. We still remained friends. Um, and about maybe four or five years after that, I was working at Bank of America. I was happy. I was, that was going to be my forever job. That's what I was looking for. And what year was this? 
this was probably 20, it was the year the iPhone came out. Um, or something? Yeah, uh, seven, I think. Okay. I think my memory's failing me a little bit. Somebody will fact check this later. And I was uh, talking with one of my one of my good friends at the bank. Uh, he was a top performer there. And I said, yeah, I'm kind of like, I'm kind of just like gonna, I'm, I'm gonna do my work here. I like the bank. I like this kind of work. Um, it's innovative. It's fun. And yeah, I don't see myself going anywhere. And he looked at me and he went, really? You're done? And I was like, oh God, he just hit the nerve. That's it. And I was gone within two years. Uh, I went to another company. I met my current co-founders and that was it. Okay. So that's 2000. So let's say if it was, so this is around 2009-ish. Yeah, we start. We started eight, but officially in 2015, December. Of, I'm sorry, December of 2008. December 2008. Yeah. Okay, and that was the first time you started your own company. Yes. Well, no, the second time. Okay, I'm sorry. Yeah, and then yeah, so kind of walk me through from then to now. Yeah. So we started in 2008, and the fun origin story around that it was, um, we were kind of like nights and weekends, literally garage building products just for fun there were about 10 of us uh, across all disciplines and that's when i really started to feel the spark of like aha people that are different from me this is what i need in the room this is what i need i need people to challenge me i need people to tell me i'm not right this is good um i need people who know design um and can can ask me for my opinion on tech that's good too okay so um i was I, we were just kind of doing that nights and weekends type thing and the iPhone dropped or Apple dropped their SDK. So the SDK is that bit of software that that allows you to build native apps for a device. Okay. So you can interact with the buttons and you get all the native stuff. It's not a web app. It's an actual like app that runs on the, on the hardware. And I opened up the app. I opened up the SDK and I realized that I knew everything in there because I was a former Next Step developer. Um, and so as you, uh, as you can see, there's a big, there's a little black cube behind me over there. Yeah. That, that's a next computer. Uh, that's what Steve jobs did when he left Apple in the oh, no way. 80s. Yeah. And that right there, that puppy right there is the progenitor of everything iOS and Mac OS today. So when oh. I cracked open that SDK, I was like, oh my God, I know all this already. So I called two of my partners and I said, um, you know, if we start working on, on iPhone apps today, back then they were called iPhone apps. Uh, we'll have about a year on everybody. We'll have about five years on everybody. We'll have that kind of a lead time, but that'll only last one year. And we, we just, we, we doubled down on mobile and never looked back, which was hard because people didn't know how to do mobile back then. Yeah. Um, but, but it was what, it was a rush. It was a lot of fun. Yeah. See, cause I'm a, I've always been, and I'm probably one of the most loyal Android users out there, but 99% of my friends that are literally all the numbers in my phone. Now, I'd probably say like 95% are iPhone users. So I'm always the green bubble. Uh, <laughs> so whenever you ask about timelines of Apple and all that, I yeah. even like the Apple terminology, I genuinely am like, well, can you explain that a little bit more? Because I have no idea. But uh, I would say the vast majority of people in the U, my friends in the US that are, um, they're all iPhone users. Outside of the U.S., it's different because I think there's a lot more Android, you know, because I have family kind of all over the world. Um, but okay, so now, but you said 8-Bit started in 2008. Um, and so what's the journey been for 8-Bit from 2008 till now? So I'd say from 2008 for the first maybe like eight or nine years, we had a pretty 
decent growth trajectory. And 2008, I characterize as the second renaissance of the Chicago startup scene. So back when in the early the 2000s, what's that? When was the first? I was, yeah, back in 2001, 2002 um, was when the first startup frenzy started to happen in Chicago. That was the time of Divine Adventures, um, uh, Flipkowski, and everything kind of, it was the, the bubble burst um, for those who are around uh there was a company called March 1st and they were one of the first ones to implode and the whole ecosystem kind of dried up really quickly. So what happened was that the, 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 the whirlpool of events that happened um, that from my perspective, from what I saw around 2008, 2009 was, uh, so not only did we have this, this yet another democratized technology in mobile, in mobile computing, but we also had in Chicago, we had uh, Booth and Kellogg, churning out MBA students from an entrepreneurial track. So these weren't just middle management MBA programs. These were MBA programs for people that wanted to start companies. And we started seeing people out of these programs like right after we started the company. And because our price point was so good and we were so small, we just started making products for startups. And we rode that wave for probably like six years. Yeah. And then we started to grow up in the middle market. Uh, where we kind of sit right now, we kind of happily sit in the middle market space. Like I would say, usually companies in the you know fifty to one hundred million dollars is a good company size for us. Um, the anomalous ones that we work with are over a billion in revenue. Um, they can be a lot of fun, and the ones we work with are. So we get pretty lucky that way. Okay. So one of the things that we talked about during that three-hour conversation, what not over drinks, was. Uh... And what you and I have even texted about was just like the the impact of AI, it's generative AI, right? And so um, I think there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of different marketing out there for companies that are AI quotes and I'm putting air quotes in it because I don't think a lot of them are. And I don't think a lot of people truly understand AI. Um, I think ChatGPT was a great way for people to get like a basic understanding of how good AI works. But I wanted to get your perspective on what do you like, how does AI impact, let's say for mid mid-sized companies, right? Um, how does AI impact the major functions like finance, accounting, um, marketing, HR, just the major aspects of it? Yeah. And I think we're starting to see the beginnings of how it's going to impact um, industries outside of tech. So, so AI in general has been around for a long, long time. Mm -hmm. And what we're seeing right now with the generative generative AI is, um, you know, is a sub component of AI called machine learning, and it's you know it's based on neural networks that that do. It's actually pretty simple math, but you have to do a lot of it very quickly to be effective. And you know, about maybe three or four years ago, the hardware caught up to the needs of the software, and that's where it really took off. And so. You know, it's kind of it's kind of been constrained in technology for for a number of years, and the the, the little bits of pieces that we've seen leak out are um, things in the like case based reasoning industry where you had like you had uh, the great example of of case based reasoning is phone trees. You call in, you say uh, the, the the operator on the other end, the the machine operator you know, asks you who you're trying to reach, you tell it, it kind of gets you decision treeing into the right department. Okay. So that's like the most simple version of quote AI. It was, okay. was case-based reasoning. Um, so we kind of saw a little bit of it leak out into industry. 
But right now, I would say with, you know, maybe with some of the predictive analytics that have been around, it's like maybe like six years now where people are trying to use it to predict behavior and, and do behavioral analysis and try to figure out how to personalize their products for users. And that's, you know, kind of how they win and convert their users. Um, we're now seeing it leak into and be adopted by um domains outside of tech and marketing and like you said finance and accounting and medical medical it's been a medical for a while but think about this i mean if you ever you've been in finance and you've probably worked in spreadsheets before um doing some kind of a large algorithmic thing in a cell in a spreadsheet stuff you've got to look up every single time and stuff you have to remember how to describe to look it up and find it in the right place on google well, imagine that you don't have to do that anymore. Imagine you could just describe what you want to do to a to a chat bot and it just gives you your macro. It probably saved you an hour. Yeah. You know? And I, there's a lot of between that and some of the some of the uh, you know, like uh, give me the basic formula for uh for attrition or give me the basic formula for depreciation, stuff like that. I think it's it's gonna be great for those things that you don't use all the time, but you need to use them. You know, you need to find them. You need to look them up. Is it so? Um, let's take a you know a mid-sized company and uh, you know the, like I said the different aspects of it. When people think about you know to make it simple, let's use HR for human resources, for example. Like all the yeah. like let's say you have the H the VP of HR, the CHRO, and then you have a director, a manager, and a uh, generalist underneath them right so of a let's say a 200 million dollar company or whatnot how would artificial into ai generative ai affect hr and uh whether that means making them more efficient taking work making it less work for the individual person or how it combines everything together to predict what the company needs to do next can you walk me through like how it can potentially affect an hr team of a 200 million dollar company let's just say yeah, and I think I think there's a couple of different ways to look at see how it's going to affect a company like that or any size company uh, that's using this in the HR space. You've got to, you, you can look at efficiencies and best practices, and you can look at biases. And I think biases are where we have to be very very careful um, and 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 ethics. And that's kind of where I'm like laser focused right now. But I'll give you a great example of this, and you can use this anywhere. Um, so I work with a startup. Um, I'm at the advisory board of a startup. And this startup asked me for a job description for a project manager. Oh, yeah, Apebit has project managers. So what I typically do is I go into our treasure trove of, of job descriptions and documentation. I usually pull something out, redact the, uh, the the sensitive bits, ship it on over, and they can use it. Okay. Uh, you know, rising tide lifts all boats type things. So I was going to do that, and this co-founder of this of this found the founder of this startup went wait 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 hold on, and he gave me control of his Zoom session and he gave me his chat, and I wrote the prompt very simple prompt. Um, and I included in there, you know, give me inclusive language because I, I personally don't like rock star language. I think that's, uh, it's, that, that weeds it, you know, unintentionally weeds people out that could otherwise be very good for your team. So I wrote what I thought was a pretty inclusive prompt and I let it go. And what it generated was better than what I already had. And I was like, wow, that took me 10 minutes. <laughs> that was huh. pretty impressive. That was pretty amazing. Um, and I read through it on, you know, I read through it to make sure that there was nothing crazy in there. Um, because, you know, job descriptions are, 
that's that's their first introduction to a candidate and you want it to be representative of who you are as a company yeah uh and it struck the perfect tone for this guy it was amazing um the other thing to talk about is um uh the the ethics and biases around it so um i'm working with another company that has a pretty kind of a more traditional um old school hr department in place okay. and they're looking for tech talent so there's a, a bit of a a bit of a, a conflict there they're trying to attract uh young dynamic professionals but the way they're going about it is somewhat antiquated okay and and they're a little bit hesitant to, they're also in a very highly regulated industry and they're a bit hesitant to, to kind of get out of the comfort zone. And that's one of the places where, where, you know, when you start playing around with AI, you have to be very careful about the biases you're going to bring in. So if somebody like, if, if a, if kind of a, uh, like, you know, maybe a, a, an HR department that's got people that have been working in the HR industry for maybe like 30, 40 years that haven't kept up with, you know, most common DEI language and they start crafting prompts, they might get a completely biased type of job description that they're now putting out there and they're going to get those kinds of candidates. So it's not really going to help them that much diversify. And that's why I think we have to be a little careful, actually very careful. How do you, how can you be careful? Well, I think, you know, in that, you know, with the second example, it all comes down to training. Um, understanding and being willing to onboard new hiring principles around a changing marketplace, right? I mean, every generation, like every what, every 15 years, a new generation is graduating from college. So any, every 15 years, you have to rethink how you communicate with a new group of recruits. And if you're stuck if you're stuck in the language of, you know, let's say 1985 recruiting, uh, there have been four <laughs> generations that have graduated since then. Yeah. Um, my generation, when I graduated, uh, so I graduated college in 1990. Um, while, while Gen X was very much a product of um, uh, recycling, that was our big thing. It's a completely different tone of sustainability now. Yeah. So we can't just think about quote recycling. We have to think about climate change and we have to think about sustainability and sustainable products and practices. Oh, I think, I think the, even the last five years, a lot has I, changed. Um, I agree. Completely so, agree. Yeah. So I think absolutely the, the changing part, but so what, it, but like that example I used of a CHRO, a director, manager, generalist, they all have different functions. Right. And so when I look at HR, talent acquisition slash recruiting is always, um, and I know this because I, I say this because I have a lot of HR friends. That's like recruiting is the least favorite thing for most HR people to do. And so um, because there's so much that goes into the recruiting, uh, including onboarding and all that. But on top of that, finding candidates is hard. Making sure you have the right job description is hard. Uh, you got to be compliant with everything and all that. Um, I, does So having generative AI and the technology that's within AI that can go into a lot of different softwares. How does it help to um, consolidate a lot of these things so that yeah. people can do people aren't doing mundane work? Yeah, and and I think you 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 hit on something interesting there. And by the way, I love the recruiting aspect. Um, so so at first nine years of APIT, finance and HR reported up to me, um, and I still do all the phone screening for our tech team. Um, I I kind of love it because what I love about it is I love finding the people that 
that are going to row in our direction. I love that. It's such a good feeling to to find somebody like, oh my God, this is, this person's perfect. This is going to be awesome. Um, and then watching them grow in their role is, is a, a, a pleasure of mine as well. Um, but I would say that, you know, kind of going back to, and I'm, please correct me if I'm not answering your question, but um, you know, going back to the piece I said about training is that I think we've got an awesome opportunity with AI tools right now to, you know, if you're an HR generalist or on the recruiting side and you want to crack open the DEI nut a little bit, um, you can you can use generative AI to give you best practices in a better, more informative way than you can with, say, a Google search. Because Google search is just going to return a bunch of contextless documents. But if you're using a generative AI or a chatbot, um, you can ask it specific questions about um, the industry that you're hiring for, what you're currently seeing in trends, and how to be more inclusive. And it can give you contextualized answers for you. And then you can have like this, this session-based conversation about it, and it can build on your concerns or your needs. That's, I think that's a huge opportunity for HR. Got it. Okay. And what about... Um... What about when it comes to accounting finance? Because I look at, you know, I look at accounting as more of, you know, looking at how everything is right now and finance is more of like taking that and then figuring out what you need to do next in order for the company to grow or um, finding efficiencies, right? So how does generative AI, based on the technology that's out there and available right now, like what, how does it, how can it help uh, accounting and finance teams? Yeah, I mean, it's all the same thing, right? It's it's context-based research. So in 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 the in pre-search in pre-web search era, you went out to uh, specialized libraries and you looked for information articles or research or keeping up with the latest regulation when it when it comes to finance and accounting, um, and then you applied that to what you're doing. And it's a very arduous task. Search comes along, and now you can at least hone your search to um, what you're going for. You you know I'm looking for the latest tax law regarding to whatever, and then you can find that. With generative AI, you can start getting a little more creative in how you pose, how you search for those answers. So if you want to know, like, um, how has the tax law changed between this year and that year for LLCs in Illinois, you can ask that question of generative AI and you can get a context-based answer. So it's it's really very similar to the HR. Any kind of these generalist yet domain-specific questions um, on the research side, you can get these contextualized answers. And, and by the way, you know, if you're using a chatbot that doesn't give you reference articles by default, you should always include reference articles in your prompts. So you can just double check to make sure it's giving you the right answers. Do you think that, and I, I had a, um, I had a podcast discussion with Apurva, who's a, a, a CFO, um, but he's always been in the tech space. And I was, I asked him this and I'll ask you this too. Like, how does, my question to him was, would AI literally be able to, eliminate the month end close or the quarterly closes that accounts have to do by like a drastic number, like by 90% where it could potentially almost do it for them. It's a, it's a good question. And you know, when you, when you started to ask that question, I thought about all the, like the analytic and predict and, and projection uh, tasks that accountants and finance officers have to do. Um, that's usually very arduous. And there's only so much knowledge you as your CFO or as an accountant, um, have to get all that information. My my dad was a uh, was a um, 
uh, controller at Motorola. So I watched okay. him, you know, do the do the budgets and the forecasting. And he used to come home sometimes and say, "Yeah, they didn't like my numbers." And I was like, "I don't even know what that means. Like, a number is yeah. a number. How do you not like a number?" <laughs> like right. my 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 tiny little young brain just couldn't comprehend what that meant. But now, of course, I know that if you're you know if you're forecasting out, not quote liking a number is you would like to see it be something different. You want somebody to substantiate your bias. Um, which is not a great move, right? If somebody's trying to give right. you objective data. So it's funny because I was I was in a call earlier today where we were talking about um, the the predictive capabilities of machine learning in large data sets. So yeah, if you've got a trove of data, if you're a two hundred million dollar company and you've got a trove of data, financial data, um, and you've got an AI that that that's siloed and you own, yeah, I would I would love to, to, to see what happens when you give financial data to that thing, to get trends, to get predictions, to get um, uh, forecasts. And I think the trick there is doing it in a protected silo area because every company is going to have privacy issues, which is a whole nother rat's nest. That's the other thing I was going to ask you is, um, is the privacy part, because I think with OpenAI, they probably created the biggest human psychological experiment in the world for four months yeah because they literally i mean they opened it up every everyone was using chat gpt at least to test it out for some point right yep. and it was all information that open ai just got because people were voluntarily inputting it in there so the security aspect i mean so when i look at like companies that are um uh, because i think of ai as as not like in an industry but almost like electricity right um it's it, it's just the the way things are done using technology so but if a company has their own ai let, let's say uh what i'm saying is like um uh like an sap company or quickbooks or something you know if they have their own ai that's built into their software there i don't see any issues with like privacy just in general because you know it's you you're signing a deal with quickbooks or um uh, microsoft or whatever um but what is the concerns for privacy when you think about businesses in AI? So, so there's the obvious points, right? Of like data breaches and using a public AI or using an AI, uh, a cloud-based AI where, that you're giving your data to, right? So um, I, I talked with a, a VP of tech at uh, ExxonMobil and obviously they cannot use a cloud-based AI. All of their, all their data is proprietary, all their tech is proprietary. So they can't, they can't do that. We as 8-bit, even... A small company like us, we're under NDA with all of our clients. We can't just start giving the information to to uh, to a machine learning neural network uh, because we'll be by doing that we're breaking the NDA. Yes. So you know people have to be careful about that. That's like table stakes, right? But um, but on the on on the privacy side, so I'm sure you've heard the the, the fact that I think if, if the number is either six or eight, but uh, let's say it's eight for, let's be optimistic and say it's eight. You only need eight data points to identify a, a person on this planet. It's astounding. You only need eight what are data the eight? points. What are the, I don't, what you... I, I don't know. I don't know. What did um, they mean by data points? Um, if I know your gender, your uh, age, um, some generic facts about um, you know, your maybe browsing habits or whatever, I can tell you where you live. I can tell you who you okay. are. The, the most famous example of this is, um, is Target's 
pregnancy predictor. Have you heard about this? No. Okay. So several years ago, uh, Target was, and this was pre-GPT, Target uh, came up with a system whereby if they watched certain purchasing behavior patterns, they could predict whether or not someone was pregnant and then target to them before anybody else could figure it out. So Target had a leg up over their competitors in their own store, in their own marketplace, and they could start they could start um, marketing Target branded material um, to pregnant women. So they started marketing and the, um, they got a call one day from a dad of a 17 year old saying, why are you marketing um, pregnancy materials to my underage daughter? Well, it turns out she was pregnant. Oh, wow. Yeah. So and Target is a better pregnancy test than most pregnancy tests. <laughs> <laughs> well, the girl, the, the, the girl knew she was pregnant, right? But oh, the dad, okay, okay. But the dad didn't. Ah, gotcha. Ouch. Yeah. And so basically like that was a huge, huge, number one, it was a, it was an underage privacy issue. Um, and there was a huge, uh, compliance legal action against target, um, and target eventually. How's that a, how's that a privacy issue? Because if she was shopping there, she was voluntarily buying whatever that she was buying, right? Sure. She was using an app or was it, but they, but they, but, but she didn't get a chance to tell her parents target told her parents. Oh, Target told her parents. Yeah, so she got a mailer to address to her. Her dad saw it and went, "What the hell? What's going on here, Target?" Oh, Called so up Target it sent to it was sent to her house under her name. That's right. So, but even then, like, isn't it more like a voluntarily you're buying whatever you're like? I think it's messed up the whole situation. But I'm trying to find the like the the philosophical side of it. Is it really wrong for Target to do that? It's it it's a it's a tough dilemma, right? There, there's no, I don't think there's any right answer here, but there are there are gray areas of ethical of ethical grounds that you can stand on, right? Mm -hmm. So is it wrong to have targeted messaging? The, the short answer is no, because it helps it helps the efficiency of me as the yeah. end user get my product. It helps yeah. you target me and not waste all kinds of money and drive the price of everything up just trying to find me a customer. Um, but as with any technology, it can be misused. Yeah, that's a that's an interesting example. But I mean, I, I guess I could see where I I have a very I personally like the convenience of uh, like right now as we're talking, I'm probably gonna get an Instagram ad for something that we talk about, right? Which is fine. That's kind of in my opinion generic. Whereas, but Amazon, I love Amazon. It's made my life so much easier um, over the last, especially since COVID. But I like the predictability of that, you know, it being able to be, but it gives me options. And I, opt, sure. if I really want to opt out of anything in any of the social media platforms or whatever, I could go to my settings and do it. It is a little creepy, but um, I could see in that example, why the parent would get a little upset. But the way I look at it, um, when we're going back to the, going back to the business side, the companies and the predictability, I think, I think the, I think AI makes things more efficient by, and I wholeheartedly mean this. I think it takes away a lot of mundane work that people don't necessarily want to do. And I say that strictly from HR people that they every there's no HR person that I know that likes to do onboarding paperwork every day, you know, for eight to ten hours a day or whatnot when they have huge classes. Um, they would rather be doing something a little bit more different. And just people that I've talked to that's a little bit more strategic, that's more um dealing with the employees or employee issues and things like that. 
accounting people, there's so much mundane work in accounting, especially if a company's uh, technology is not um, up to date or whatnot. But on the on the uh, contradictory to that is is AI really gonna make people's jobs obsolete? No, no. But real quick, let's go back to something that that I don't want to I don't want to accidentally trivialize. So uh, so that young woman who uh, who her father discovered she was pregnant. Yeah. If you take that out to a different type of um, uh, unintentional information sharing, let's say you're uh, you you're able to identify someone's uh, sexuality or gender preference, um, and let's say the person lives in a place where it's life threatening to be known for that. Now mm. you're putting people's lives at risk, right? Okay. So so I don't want to I don't want to overly accidentally overly overly trivialize um accidentally over trivialize something uh that can be potentially life altering for people. On the um on the uh job job obsolescence side, it's it, you will I, here's my favorite quote. You will not lose your job to AI. You will lose your job to somebody using AI. Mm -hmm. And it's very similar to, once again, every time we've had technological advancements in the world, from the printing press all the way through the iPhone. Yeah. Right. It's going to displace some people for sure. Um, and it's going to be creating new jobs. It's, it's you know, looking back at the research done uh, during the automotive uh, automation, you know, when they put robots on the, the factory floors in uh, auto plants, everyone predicted that it was going to crunch the auto workers and people would be out of jobs. And what happened was it, it did displace workers, but it actually created more jobs because you needed people to program the robots. You needed people to troubleshoot the robots. You needed people to maintain safety around the robots. They couldn't be trusted on their own. They had to have human operators. So while people got displaced about, you know, the, the, the more dangerous jobs, um, we needed more people to make sure that those things that were done in the dangerous portions that were done right or safely or um, consistently. Well, I, I agree with that. Like I personally, I, you know, you and I talked about this before, like I'm a huge fan of deep tech and the advancement of it. Um, but for people who, I think the thing with AI that might be different though, is because if you really, if you had a sophisticated AI and you tell it to, this is my, I would like to build a company that does this, um, with, you know, with this much investment, I, I want to earn this much in income, whatever yep. in the speed of like, it can literally create a plan for you. So now you're not just, you're not just thinking about the person who's putting a widget in a robot. You're thinking about something that can do so much more. And the crazy thing is it learns from what you, how you respond to it and what you tell it. It's got the ability to learn like a human to a point, but at the speed of light. So how does so then you think about not just the mundane jobs, but also the strategic jobs, right? And I, I might get, you know, whatever for saying this, but a lot, here, I, here personally think, <laughs> I personally think AI can literally do the job of an entire finance uh, accounting department or uh, an HR department or um, a strategic type role if you really think about it, right? Because mm -hmm. uh, it can analyze the numbers and all that kind of stuff, but it could also like forecast and figure out and create a strategy around what the company needs to do. That's interesting. All right, Benny, I'm gonna ask you a question. Yeah. Um, I've got a, uh, I've got a 19 year old uh, um, student of accounting in college. Can they do mm -hmm. your taxes next year? Can he do my taxes? 
Yeah, I didn't realize. I didn't. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah you can, will, you allow, will you allow that person to do your taxes and Orion's taxes as well? No. <laughs> Why not? They <laughs> use an eighteen-year-old. Well, they can use AI. So, I mean, you just said that AI can completely replace an accounting department. It depends on the. It depends on the. Um, I would I would trust more of like a software that I could put numbers in and it would, you know, spit it out for me. I don't think I would even need the 19 year old. Okay. So you're saying that with some oversight from an expert, you in this matter, yes, you would, you would do that. Yeah. 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 And that's kind of goes back to that original statement. Um, you're not going to lose your job to AI. You're going to lose your job to somebody using AI. Yeah. No. So I don't like, I'm saying like, if you think about yes. it, you know, conspiracy, you could think of. Oh, AI is going to take over an entire, you know, well, look, whatever. There's, there's no conspiracy. Theory, huh? Yeah, there's. Well, I was going to say there's no conspiracy theory here. I mean, that's it's a very real threat. Like, look at the writer strike right now. Okay. Yeah. So the very real problem with the writer strike is that right now, if a writer comes up with an idea, they own that idea and they can develop a a, a product around that idea, um, a TV show, a series for Netflix or whatever. Um, if if a bunch of TV execs sit around a computer and, and this is very possible today, I've done it myself with product ideas, ask for a bunch of ideas and then ask to flesh those out a little more and then bring a bunch of writers in to make it a little better or to, to amplify it, who owns the idea? Well, now you've now what you've done, and Mike Schur is making this argument right now, uh, the creator of The Good Place and Parks and Recreation. Um, he's made this argument that AI could get us to a place with writing that uh just like being an nba player if you're if you're if you're a kid who likes basketball you're looking at the nba like well i mean there's no way i'm ever going to be that good so why even bother having a career in that mm -hmm. he's his fear is that that will happen to things like writing with ai around if there's no regulation around it yeah i mean it, it's very it's, it's very heavy. possible um yeah. yeah because i think it's i think it's um and I don't think we can, like, I think all of us could make guesses on how to the, the extent of the length of how much they can do in order to really replicate and make human behavior more, way more efficient through AI. But I don't know. It's one of those things where there's, I think the philosophy and the psychology of our perception of AI is really, really interesting um, because I think the writer's strike, I don't know much about it. I actually, I didn't really understand it until you just told me right now, because ownership is, is actually really important. Like who owns it? Right. And I had, um, I don't know if you listened to it, but I, uh, Amy Schuster, she's a, a chief marketing officer who now she has her own company, but I did listen to it because you, you tried to quote me in there. So I did listen to it. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. That's right. That's right. So we talked about the, we talked the thing about like AI basically, you know, creating uh, a story or content or something. And, um, who owns it, right? Is it you or is it AI? But then her, because I told her, I was like, I don't think you own it if AI created it. But then she, I think, brought up, um, what about if you write content for a newspaper and you have an editor that edits it? That's right. Yeah, she brought up the boat principle, which is also, um, you know, when you replace a, replace a boat one plank at a time. Yes, yeah. There's a similar, there's a similar uh, philosophy by Daniel Dennett, who said, if you split the brain into two lobes and put them in two jars and are able to wirelessly connect all the connections uh, between the two halves of the brain, is it still the same brain? Is it still the same person? It still have the same thoughts. And you do that huh. ad nauseum until you have every neuron in its own jar. You say, is it still the same person? Then you start replacing each neuron with a digital component that does the exact same thing. 
And now you ask yourself, is that the same person? It's it's basically the same argument. It's a fascinating thought experiment. Yeah, that's what I mean. Like the the and then you know we haven't even under the legal um, the legal aspect of AI coming in, meaning like yeah, happy, there's so much of that coming in. So like in your in your opinion, um, so I don't I'm not saying like you know this is a here it goes. <laughs> How do you? My career is on the line all of a sudden. <laughs> how do you think uh, the integration of AI, just in uh, of generative AI, is going to? It's twenty twenty three right now. So by twenty thirty, when you think about like mid sized companies in the U.S., how is generative AI going to be affecting the operations of those companies? I really think we're going to see tight regulation around somebody's going to have to figure out ownership and copyright. Somebody's going to have to do that um, because some of the AI is like, if you look at CodePilot, for instance, from Microsoft, so it's going through GitHub repositories and grabbing, and that's how it learns how to code, quote, learns how to code, right? Um, uh, it, in some cases, is bringing in licensable code under the wrong license or unlicensed and violating the licenses. So it's so we're going to have to figure out this ownership problem one way or the other, or else yeah. people are going to get sued for not knowingly or yeah, for, for unwittingly violating some, some copyright uh, or some license. So I, I think that's going to have to happen. I think it's going to have to happen relatively soon. Um, once, it, you know, that's, this is the thing, like even with regulation, you've got, uh, let's call it dark components, like companies out there that you know might not be acting in the best faith of the regulation and trying to circumvent that. And in the digital world, it's easier to do that through VPN technology. So I don't know, man. <laughs> the world in the world in thirty years. Um, no, no, you know, world in five. Yeah. Uh, by oh, sorry, by twenty thirty. Yeah. You know what's interesting? All right, so so let's let's look at something that just is just happening right now. So if you're familiar with coding, there's a language called C++, and it's it's about as close to the metal as you can get, meaning that if uh, if you're good at it, you can write code as fast as it can possibly run, okay? Uh, but it's a very unsafe language to code in. You can make mistakes very easily. Even the most accomplished coders can make mistakes that, that can render the entire thing unsafe to use. Unsafe meaning it might crash or something. So a language was created about, I don't know, seven or eight years ago, I'm gonna get mail on this, uh, called Rust. And that was addressing a lot of those issues. Uh, Google has just come out with their, oh, their own language uh, called Carbon that does something similar. Okay, Google just came out with the language. So there's not a whole lot of, there's no code out there to compare your code to. There's not a lot of examples. They're trying, people trying to solve novel problems with it. So how's the AI gonna treat this? Like, I'm sure we're not gonna see the end of languages. So, and maybe I'm just being short-sighted here. Maybe like maybe we'll have AI-based language generation, which I'm sure somebody's trying to figure out. I don't know. It's it's it is such a multi-layered question and query that I'm more of the of the ilk of like stay informed, sit back, enjoy the ride, and get on when I can. So do you think by 2030 if AI is integrated more into and there's some type of regulation where more companies feel comfortable using AI, do you think we'll see? a lot more production in a lot less time? Wow. Yeah, like companies that are more efficient and more productive? No, I don't. Um, I mean, I guess there's two questions there. Will we see the GDP go up? 
maybe mm -hmm. because we're, we're maybe produ produce more just general more output um will people be more efficient if history has taught us anything no why do you um, say that because complexity and technology needs to be managed um and so the more complex the compl more complex the technology the more guardrails and management has to be put around it so for instance with your robot on the on the floor of the um of the the, the factory how many people are needed to make sure that that thing is created is invented is created is manufactured it gets in there it survives and it does the right thing every single day many 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 more people than that one person it replaced so in the auto industry they did not see much uh gain productivity gain from automation which is akin to ai but so you think that in if ai was more integrated into the mainstream of, of uh and i think it will be make no mistake i absolutely yeah. think it will be yeah but you think so you think that um until there's more regulations that are like more tighter regulations that it would i it don't think it has anything to do with regulation i think okay. it's simply it's simply um the technology begets complexity we're able to do more complex things with technology yeah it's, it's that simple um technology enables us to do bigger and better and more complex and more amazing things. Complexity needs people to figure stuff out. Um, any, like I, I'm thinking of, I'm trying to think of any automation right now, um, self-driving cars. Yeah. Right. All of the effort going into right now, making sure self-driving cars work and are safe is enormous and has not out, outpaced the productivity of one driver yet. Think about that for a second, right? The amount of people well, that wouldn't it took... it eventually get to it though, where it's like I don't know, man, because right now we're talking about thousands of cameras, like enormous amounts of compute power. Yeah. Um, in my mind, I don't know the number, but innumerable processors and sensors running at breakneck speeds, doing insane calculations. All that hardware, by the way, has to be manufactured and all has to be coded. Right. Right. And then all that data has to be collected and analyzed. It's, there's teams of people trying to get this right. So once again, all that all that technology comes together in a mesh of complexity that has to be wrangled into doing what we want it to do. Yeah, it's it's almost like a I don't know is it not the is it break even point or whatnot of how many cars do you really need to sell in order to really make this all feel effective? Yeah. Because but then. Once you hit that point, isn't that going to be exponential growth? Basically, like the benefits are going to be exponential. Uh, yeah. And but the the difference with AI in in software, there isn't as much manufacturing cost as there is to design, right? Oh no, like you don't think like so? the robots that are putting cars together. Um, that's like no, actual robots. Whereas with AI, you don't have to do that. So I just um, I maybe, think there's yeah. just a lot of unknown in terms of. The real impact of ai and i you know i'm i'm a huge you know we've talked about this too before over drinks like with uh with quantum computing right so i feel like i would love to be still alive where the advancements in quantum for the mainstream are um are happening because i think quantum is i think it's a, in my opinion i think it's the biggest um technological advancement in human civilization but um it's you know when you I combine would... that with generative ai it's kind of like, how does, what, what, how, how's the world going to look like? I think maybe you're pulling a Neo in the matrix with me a little bit, because I think you can see past the numbers and I can't see that right now, but 
Um, I see yeah, the numbers. I I look at technology more more on the the potential and the psychological and philosophical side of it. You know, yeah. like just well, like I, meant, what, I guess I meant like on a, on, a, on a potential application level because right now the only thing I know that quantum computing do is very specific problems way better than traditional computers. Mm -hmm. um, and these are problems that are that are that are right now siloed to like chemical engineering on the medicine on the medicine side. Yeah. So, you know, it's folding proteins. So if anybody wants to fold proteins at home, great. <laughs> Quantum computing is your answer. I, I what's what's funny, what's funny though, when you, and I hear you say like machine learning and quantum computing together, that's where I'm like, hmm, is Benny seeing something I'm not seeing? Is there, are there a bunch of ones and zeros on the screen right now? He's looking right through it to see the well, patterns. I don't know. Well, the difference is there is no ones and zeros. <laughs> when I look true, at it, true, true. Get I, it? I, the yep, quantum superposition, superpositioned uh, qubits. Yeah. Very good. Very good. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny i just thought of that when <laughs> you said that too but um no i think it's i you know i don't know i i think there's in terms of anything about the future it's kind of like you could think the future is great you could think that yeah and you might be right you can think the future is wrong then you're right like it could be either ways we just don't know well, yeah, but i love but i yeah. love having these types of you know conversations with people that can be real about their perspective on it and i think it's um i think it's really like I'm excited for it. So I don't know, I don't know what's going to happen, but I could say that I'm excited for what I think is going to happen. Yeah. And I'm a terminal optimist. I I'm, I'm always ever hopeful for the future. Um, and I always tend to see the positive sides of everything going on. So I'm, I'm kind of right there with you. I'm very excited by everything that's going on. Uh, but the 30 years of my experience is telling me to like be watchful. Yeah. Yeah. I think, yeah. I, hope for the best prepare for the worst that was my motto coming into this year but i also think that's uh that's like my motto that's going to be my motto on life because if you're being pessimistic about what the world is or how the world can be then you're just you're not you know you're taking away from your own happiness of yeah I not agree. being able to see what's good in the world right um so but what's the best way that if people seeing this want to get a hold of you can get a hold of you yeah, so they can um, they can reach out to me on LinkedIn. I'm Don Bora on LinkedIn, or they can email me at donbora at 8bitstudios.com or visit 8bitstudios.com to see our work. Awesome, man. I appreciate you, and I appreciate having to get to know you this year and you being a part of Orion 3. And uh, I'm going to probably publish this episode next week sometime and then obviously post clips of it on social media. But um, I appreciate Super. Thank you so much for having me, Benny. I really appreciate it.